Tuesday nights from 6 until 7 on KCLR. This is The Garden Show with Paul Smith. Brought to you by Arboretum Home and Garden Heaven. Transform your garden with our unbeatable range of plants, trees, tools and treatments. Arboretum.ie Hello and welcome along to The Garden Show with myself, Paul Smith. Well, this evening we have a packed lineup. We've got lots going on. Uh, we've got Colm O'Driscoll on to us to talk about soil, soil health, compost and why all that is important in our garden. And uh, we're going to get a bit of a lowdown about that. I head over to Rose House in Kilkenny and speak to Mary Pike. I'm going to go there, have a little look at that garden and explore it in the heart of Kilkenny City, a place I um, have to be ashamed to admit I'd never been to until I went there to interview Mary but a lovely little garden right in the heart of Kilkenny and our how-to will focus with James from the Kilquaid Arboretum looking at ponds, water features and all to do with that and also as ever we'll be answering all of your gardening questions uh, if you have any gardening questions or any gardening queries or whatever send them in to KCLR text or WhatsApp line 083 306 9696 uh, every week I do a little thing here before we get into the show about my plant of the week and this week is no different. This week I want to talk a little bit about salix or willows. Uh, willows are a native plant and people probably know them more uh, by their common name as sallies. So we all have heard of a sally grown in a ditch or a sally tree. But sallies or willows or salix, uh, all the same thing, uh, a really interesting group of plants. There's about 400 different species of them and the one that we probably are most aware of and most familiar to everyone would be the weeping willow, uh, a really great tree a fantastic one for a relatively big garden and a tree that loves water. Willows, if you have a damp or waterlogged garden, which occasionally you do uh, willow trees can be great for that because they're one of the few plants that actually don't mind uh, having their roots wet. Most plants, most trees in particular, will just suffer and eventually die if they're fate or wet, but willows are one that don't mind uh, You can also get ones with lovely winter stems, a variety called Britensis uh, one to look out for and another one, they have amazing catkins there's a variety that you can find in the garden centres called Mount Asso, which has got these amazing pink catkins that come up in the winter time. So great winter interest too. Those catkins are flowers as well, and they're a source of early nectar. So they're an important plant in the ecosystem. Um, and we've been using them. Humans have been using them for thousands of years, literally. Uh, there's a fishing net that's been found dates back to 8,300 BC. So we have been using willow for a very long time because not only is it a beautiful tree and a great tree that grows in lots of places, it's also a very useful plant. You can make things out of it, such as baskets and fish traps and wattle fences. And uh, back in the days of old, wattle and daub houses were even made out of willow. Uh, really is a very useful plant. Uh, but not just that. So in ancient Greece, uh, they were looking at the f- properties of it. So, you know, that back to the 5th century and Native Americans were also using it as a medicinal treatment and uh, more recently we discovered that in the bark of willow trees there is aspirin. So aspirin which we all are more than familiar with is actually derived from willow. Uh, It has in it salicylic acid which is the main component of the willow bark and by isolating that you can actually make aspirin. So not only is it a lovely tree, adaptable tree but it also gives us one of our most commonly used drugs that we have all the time. So willows are for lots of reasons really great. Another thing about a willow tree if you have one at home and you want to take a couple of cuttings of plants, we spoke about them and we'll be talking about cuttings again soon. If you want to take a bit of cuttings of plants, you can actually use willow to encourage that. Willows root so easily. They're a plant that I say root in your ear, a really, really easy plant to root. So if you get a willow branch, chop it up into a few 
few pieces, put it into a thing of boiling water, leave it soak for 24 hours, up to 48 hours or so, and then you can use that to water your cuttings. And basically, uh, the hormones that are in that plant are ones very similar that you get in the hormone rooting powder that you buy in the garden centre. So by watering your cuttings with this willow tea, you get this amazing ability for the plants to take a little bit of rooting, uh, just that little bit easier. So, coming up in a minute or two, we're going to have Colm O'Driscoll. Um, Colm is the head gardener over in Lismore Castle, and he's also just presented the RTE series Homegrown. Um, and Colm, are you there? I am, Paul. How are things? Not too bad. How are you doing? I can't complain now, yeah. Not too bad at all. Very good. Well, you've just taken on the role down in Lismore Castle, is that right, as head gardener? Yeah, just started there in November, so all change. Um, all change. And what's the season been like? Has it been a, a change going from a Dublin garden down to the Waterford uh, coast? What's it like? Is it a bit different? Yeah, big time. I think uh, the Southeast Tourist Board have a lot to answer for because they they sold it as the sunny Southeast and it hasn't stopped raining since I got down here. <laughs> um, it's it's far wetter than it was in in the East in Dublin, you know. Um, but the season's even different, you know. It, it's it's a bit cooler and a bit slower down here than it was in the microclimate of Dublin. So there's a lots of um, lots of kind of challenges and things to adapt to. Yeah, so lots to learn, I guess. Uh, we've both taken on new gardening roles in the last while, and I guess anyone and anyone listening coming new to a garden, there's a lot to learn when you come to a space that you might be familiar with, but uh, you never know quite exactly what's been planted and what's around the corner. So uh, it's a fun year ahead for you, I'm sure. Lots happening. Yeah, big time. It's mad. Like I, I, I haven't worked in airfield for nine years before that. You kind of knew every inch of the ground and what was coming and kind of in your own mind you'd know what was next um, and although I always visited Lismore I obviously don't know the garden intimately and this season every week there's a new challenge or a new thing to learn which is exciting and, and the team that were here um, prior to me starting were excellent you know they did some great work so there's lots of interest in plants and lots of new things to learn so it's it's been an enjoyable couple of months so far. Great, great. So getting into it. Um, and like in Airfield and Lismore, I'm sure it's very similar. Uh, they're probably both organic gardens and you yourself are a passionate organic gardener. Um, is that something that you would say to anyone listening at home is something that you can take on board at home and something you can do in your own garden if that's possible? 100% it is, yeah, yeah. So in Airfield, we have three acres of certified organic food production. We don't, we're not certified organic then in this more, and, and that's one of the changes this year that we're kind of moving more towards. So although they always man, manage the gardens with um, an organic ethos, I suppose there was a few things that maybe weren't quite being done. So we're trying to adapt those into our working schedule and, and kind of change to a, like a fully organic practice. And if that goes well, we we might go for certification. But in a home setting, obviously, you're never going to go for certification. But there's definitely lots of um, adaptions you can make to how you manage your own garden space and do that organically. Um, I think a lot of people fear that it's going to bring extra workload on, you know, because they, they see the effectiveness a chemical can do on the driveway, clearing weeds. And it's hard to argue against that. But I would argue that there's plenty of other benefits taking an organic approach can bring to your garden space. Um, so, okay, you might have to hoe a little bit more than you did previously, but I think the environment will thank you for it. And I think in, in this day and age, that's kind of a worthwhile task. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're all, you know, beginning to think that way. We've all sort of changed our opinion about how we should garden. So I think more and more people are listening to people like yourself who garden organically and trying to get ideas and, you know, tips from you. And uh, you've got lots of them and we'll talk about them in a few minutes. But I want to start off because I know uh, something that you're quite passionate about and something when you were in Airfield, you spent a lot of time. uh, It's about the subject of soil, which I know isn't the most uh, attractive or maybe not be the thing that everyone wants to talk about when it comes to gardening. But it's pretty fundamental, isn't it? It's pretty important, the whole idea of soil in the garden, and it's kind of what the garden relies on. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, soil is key for all life, really, you know, and it's, it, as you said, it's the bedrock of any garden, and it's such a, I suppose, vast topic, and one that's, there's a lot of growth there, and a lot of research in recently, because people are starting to understand the complexity of soil, um, and really delve into the detail, and, and that has implications for how we manage it and how we approach our gardens and, and what maybe is best practice now. I, I know when I studied horticulture, double digging was still very much advocated. Um, and now that's kind of being questioned and the idea of, you know, moving towards kind of no dig or preserving soil is, is definitely uh, gathering more momentum. And the more research that goes into all this, the more of our traditional practices are being questioned. And it's a real exciting time. Yeah, soil kind of mightn't have the the, the sexiest of um, titles in, in the gardening world. It mightn't be the thing people want to talk about. It's usually about the plants and the more colourful aspects of life. But um, none of that really functions unless the, the soil is right, you know. So it's kind of the, the starting point, I think, for a lot of gardeners. If they get that right, everything else might come a bit easier. Absolutely. We have this whole saying that isn't it? We owe our existence as a species to a couple of inches of soil and the fact that it rains. So it's, uh, yeah, it's important <laughs> stuff. True, yeah, <laughs> we do yeah. like, yeah, we'll brush it, sure it over, is. but it's, it's great and it yeah. is very, very important. Uh, Colm, thank you very yeah, much. We're going to go over to a very quick ad break and we'll be back with you to answer a few more questions to do with soil, if that's okay. The Garden Show on KCLR with Paul Smith. Brought to you by Arboretum Home and Garden Heaven. Transform your garden with our unbeatable range of plants, trees, tools and treatments. Arboretum.ie And welcome back to The Garden Show. On air here, I have Colm O'Driscoll, head gardener at Lismore Castle. And we're talking a little bit about soil and soil in your garden, how to look after it, what to do to it. And Colm... We talked before the break just about how soil is so important, but in garden situations, we often leave patches of soil bare for various different reasons, particularly in the veg garden. Is this is this a wise thing to be doing? Um, no, and again, I, I suppose uh, a good lesson or a good um, person or a good thing to learn from is nature, I suppose. And like when you think of where in nature soil is bare, it's usually like, desert areas or areas that aren't very um, productive, you know. So I yeah. suppose we translate that into our own garden setting. Bare soil tends to not be a great thing. Um, basically, if the soil is bare, it means that the, the microbes that are in the soil that usually live off the roots of plants have nothing to feed them and they tend to go dormant. Um, it also means that the soil can be eroded and washed away um, and nutrients can be leached. So ideally, where possible, and it's one thing in, in the veg garden in, in Lismore and in Airfield would be really keen to do is try and avoid having bare soil where possible, you know. And the first thing we'd love to have is living roots in the soil. But that's not always possible, because especially in a veg sense, because we sometimes need the ground clear for the next crop. So in that case, we'd move on to mulch. Um, and then at all, 
if all else fails, we'll use a bit of black plastic or a tarp just to sheet down over the soil and, and again, preserve it from the, the worst of the elements. So basically, no matter what, try and not have the soil um, bare at all. And you mentioned there about mulch, and that's something I keep telling people, and we spoke about organic gardening, mm. and I think mulching is one of those secrets to organic gardening. It really, really helps, doesn't it, when you're trying to garden like that? Yeah, absolutely. And getting to know your mulches and what you can use when is really key. Like, so, you know, bark chip, some people were afraid of applying bark, chip, bark chips to soils because the fear that they might rob all the nitrogen. But sometimes there's parts of your garden that mightn't be a bad thing because it means it'll suppress growth. So on the paths in our veg gardens, we'd use bark chip to suppress weed growth and also protect the soil. And it works really well. Well, then on the beds, we'd be using our compost, whether that's a bought-in compost or our own garden waste compost to, to kind of feed the soil and, again, suppress weeds as well. And most importantly and more relative now, conserve moisture because previously, I guess, as our as our climate is, is starting to change and we're getting these prolonged spells of drought, moisture conservation is becoming more and more important and, and mulching is key to kind of retaining the moisture in soil. So, yeah, I think you're right, Paul. You can't advocate enough for mulching in my eyes. Yeah, it's one of those things that if people ask how to control weeds, everything, it answers so many questions and you're right, there's a lot to learn about it, but it is certainly something mm. uh, that we really have to spend a bit more time doing. And just before we finish mm-hmm. up, Colm, I want to talk just briefly about compost um, and making your own compost in the garden. Is that uh, something mm. that's easy and achievable in a small setting in a garden? It absolutely is, yeah. Like complex, like, or like compost, like all these topics, you can delve in as deep or as shallow as you want on them. But ultimately, um, it, it's a simple enough process, especially if you get your inputs right. Um Really, it's about matching your, your, your green and brown waste. And that's the carbon and nitrogen, nitrogen ratio. And once you have that right, it can tend to look after itself. Um, I actually went on a course yesterday for uh, a, a new kind of form of composting. It's a, a Johnson Sioux bioreactor and it, it's a really fancy title, but essentially it's um, a stagnant compost pile. Not stagnant. That's the wrong word, but a stationary compost pile. So you never turn it. Um, so you'd chip up all your inputs and you'd leave them there for 12 months. And it's been proven to be the most um, biologically rich compost you can do, which is really interesting. So it's, it's kind of a low input in relation to you make your compost pile once and then you let it sit there um, for a year. Now, that's a bit of an oversimplified description, but essentially that was it. So um, it, it's it's a really interesting take on, on compost making, you know, um, but in saying that, the way we'd mostly make compost in the garden is by having a series of piles and, and turning them and ensuring they get aerated. And aeration is key to the creation of good compost. Um, so it is it is good to have um, to get let some air in there. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, you know, more and more we're being encouraged to do and something that is very easy to do. And I like the idea of a compost heap that doesn't need a huge amount of work at all. Uh, Colm O'Driscoll, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on and giving us a little bit of uh, knowledge and insight into soil and compost and why it's so important in our garden. Now, we're going to head over to Roth House in Kilkenny, where last week I caught up with the head gardener, Mary Pike. So I'm standing here at the back of Roth House in Kilkenny 
and beside me is the head gardener, Mary Pike. And we've just had a quick run around the garden. Uh, but Mary, you know much more about here than I do. So can you fill us in a small bit about the history of Rot House and the garden that we're standing in here now? So thank you for having me and thank you, thank you for coming in and having a chat. Uh, so Roth House uh, is owned or was owned by John Roth. John Roth was a wealthy merchant in Kilkenny. Um, he was uh, given the plot of land because he was able to pay a rent. Um, as I said, he's a merchant, so he was able to import uh, silks and uh, seeds and bulbs and various different things into the area. Um, the garden that we're standing in um, shows some of the um, various different seeds and bulbs and plants that would have been not readily available in the 17th century. So they're slightly more unusual. Um, and that was because he was a merchant and he was able to import these things in. He used the garden as his shop window. So prospective people could come in, have a look around and see what they wanted to purchase. So I suppose um, the house, the first house was built in uh, 1594. Um, and as his family grew, so he had 12 children. So as his family grew, he built the second house in 1604 and the third house in 1610. They're all separated by courtyards and then the half an acre garden behind. Um, so as I said, there's various different things in the garden. So we have things like artichokes, which wouldn't be readily available in the 17th century. Um, and then up in the orchard, we have 40 apple trees, seven different varieties, and they're all heritage varieties. And he would have had them um, in the garden uh, for his cider or, you know, for general eating at the time. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, quite a lot here and quite a quite a history and a long history. I mean, going back to the 1500s. So it's uh, incredible that you can trace that back the whole way there, too. So and I know we chatted a little bit before we started um, recording here, but this garden is quite unique in many ways. Can you tell me what makes it unique uh, in Ireland or what, what makes it different, I suppose, to any other garden open to the public? So the garden is unique because it is on an existing burgage plot. It's the only one open to the public in Ireland. And a burgage plot is a plot of land that runs from the main street, which would have been Parliament Street back in the, you know, the 16th, 17th century. And it runs right back to the city walls. So it is a long strip of land and it's only half an acre, but it is slightly bigger because John Roth was wealthy. So it's a width and a half. Um, and it was all about status. So it's, a, it's, as I said, it's a slightly bigger garden and more of a leisure garden. Wow. Wow. So that's a very, very uh, unique plot in that way. And yeah, it is. I've never been here before. I'm ashamed to say, but it's a very long, narrow, uh, really beautiful half acre plot. And when we came in here first, you said that it was, wasn't always a garden. So what we're standing in, you know, even 20 years ago was very different to what it is now. Is that fair to say? Very fair to say. So this was a car park. So the house was purchased by the Kilkenny Archaeological Society in the 1960s and they had to do up some of the houses. So they actually sold what is now the garden. They sold that plot of land to the OPW to generate funding uh, to do up the houses. Um, So the uh, Kilkenny Archaeological Society 
drew up a conservation plan with the Heritage Council in 2004 and one of the items on that list was to do up the garden. So we officially started the garden in 2007 and we have the land leased from the OPW since. Wow, so it's a really short history really in terms of this particular garden, a long, long history in terms of the whole site. But um, yeah, wow, and it looks amazing. I mean, you really wouldn't think that this garden is less than 20 years old. It really is. It's credit to everyone here. Um, It's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. So we've mentioned, Mary, that this garden is in two separate halves and... The bit here we're looking at, the layout of this, this wasn't one that was came up with, this was one of the layouts that was found, was it, when the car park was uncovered after it was found, bought in 2007 or restored in 2007, I should say. Absolutely. So the archaeologists came on site and uh, they discovered the design that you're looking at today. So they actually found the pits where the hollow oak trees are standing, where the filaria hedges. They even found where the herb area boxes are. So it's all historically correct, as it would have been in the 17th century. Uh, that's pretty incredible. And we're standing just out of the wind and sheltering a bit. It's a slightly blustery day. It's gorgeous. It's a lovely day, but slightly blustery. And we're here on top of what was, you said, the well. And what is the well? Because you can look down into it. Absolutely. So it's a 13th century well. It was built by the Cistercian monks from Gregna Manor. And the abbot had his townhouse here. So the plot goes back even back to the 13th century. Um, so it is, it's here quite a while. <laughs> it's literally steeped in history. Well, we might have a quick wander now over to the orchard area. We'll go over the well and we'll have a wander around the garden while it's uh, while the wind is sort of tied down for a minute. So we have stood in from the wind. It's a very lovely but blustery day and we've stood into one of the little production areas at the back, not open to the public, but it is absolutely stuffed with little plants and different bits and pieces that have been propagated here, I'm assuming, Mary. Is that right? Yes, they have. Yeah, absolutely. It keeps me busy during the winter. <laughs> when you have nothing else to do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were telling me these have a particular purpose because you are going to have a sale on here to raise money for a new glass house. Is that right? Absolutely. So it is for fundraising. We're doing a plant sale um, to generate funds to, to do up this um, greenhouse. Unfortunately, it's uh, seen better days, so I just need to go bigger. I need more space. Great. And when is that on and what time uh, do you know? So it'll be on uh, May the 20th. It's a Saturday and it'll be open from 10 o'clock. And normally speaking, you're open year round here. Is that right? The garden and the house are open all year round for anyone who's interested. Absolutely. Yeah, we're open um, all year round. In the winter, there are slight restrictions um, on the days we're open. I think we're closed every Monday and the opening hours are slightly reduced. But for the most part, we're open all year round. And we have just, as I say, stood in from the bit of wind there to have a look at uh, the orchard area. But the orchard area, obviously orchard full of apples, but they're not any old apples. They're heritage varieties and ones that were probably not from the time of when the house was first built. But they are old varieties that are probably particular to this area. Is that right? Um, well, there is one called Kilkenny Permain. Of course, we had to pick yeah, that yeah. one. <laughs> um, but uh, they are all heritage varieties. Uh, so generally, they all date back to the 19th century. Um, so we have seven varieties and there's 40 apple trees out there at the moment. And they're all on small rootstocks. So they're on 26, um, the M26. And that's really because it's only a half an acre. We're trying to cram in as much as we could. Um, so we chose to go a little bit smaller. 
Well, there's absolutely no um, issue with it. And the garden, as I said earlier, really looking beautiful. I know you're not here even full time, so it's a credit to yourself and everyone who helps here. Um, really lovely spot. Uh, I just want to say thank you for having me here. It's great to see the garden. Um, and before we head also, just to talk about the garden here, you're trying to uh, look at it in a kind of modern way. So it's obviously a very, very old garden, but you garden it sort of, you know, with today in mind. So we were even talking earlier on that you allow the dandelions to flower in this garden, which some people might turn their eyes to heaven when they hear. Is that? Yeah. yeah, so I prefer to leave them flowered this time of the year because there's a, you know, there's not that many flowers out and I find that the bees need uh, something to to munch on so we leave them there but we take them as soon as they're starting to go to seeds they're gone um, but we do try and garden in um, a different way that we're, we're trying to be biodiverse minded um, so we don't use pesticides and we don't use sprays within the garden we have incorporated perennial borders that wouldn't have been around at the time and the reason for that was to encourage more uh, insect life into the garden then we have plants in the garden that I use uh, like southern wood for green fly and wormwood for black fly because it just attracts those and it stays off all my other plants. So it's a garden with a really long history but one that you're kind of gardening with the future in of mind so look I have to say thank you very much uh, it's lovely to see you here and thank you very much for your time today Mary. Thanks for coming in. The Garden Show on KCLR with Paul Smith. Brought to you by Arboretum Home and Garden Heaven. Transform your garden with our unbeatable range of plants, trees, tools and treatments. Arboretum.ie Every week here on The Garden Show, we're bringing you the best advice for the host of experts from the team at the Arboretum. Um, how to look after your garden, what to do in your garden and kind of topics that are relevant to now in the garden. And this week we're looking at ponds and water features and all things to do with ponds. And on the air here with me, I have James Conley, the shop manager up in the Kilquade Arboretum. James, are you there? I am, Paul. Yes. How, how, how are you doing? Not too bad, James. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad at all, no. Very good. Uh, great day for a water feature or a pond in the garden. I don't know what it's like up there, but the weather here has been on-off, on-off. Um, <laughs> we've been one of those type of days. So Plenty of, plenty of rainwater to fill them with there over the last few days. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what is it though, James, just to talk very briefly about it, about water features in the garden? Um, and why about water in the garden? Do we like so much? Do you know? Um, just with the ponds, yeah, just with water garden in general, I think it's just that they they add another dimension. Just having a little pond or a water feature in the garden, um, you know, and they're also great really for just attracting wildlife, which is probably why a lot of people put ponds into the garden at the moment. So it's just for for getting wildlife into the garden, um, and then it's just you know it's nice and relaxing listening to the sound of the water flowing as well. So it's you know that can be nice uh, sitting out in the evening listening to the water. It could be very relaxing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's always great to be able to um, to listen to it and just after a busy, busy day, just sit down and listen to the uh, water relaxing and everything like that. So just in terms of it, the benefits of having a pond in particular, right? you mentioned that they're a little bit about the wildlife and that. And so are they are they a very attractive thing to wildlife in the garden? Is it important if you are looking to have a garden that has a kind of full ecosystem to have a small bit area of wetland and pond in it? 
I, I definitely think so. I think so now. Yeah, like you know, they, they attract a lot into the garden. You know, from insects at the moment, the ponds are full of you know tadpoles, so it's great to see. Um, you know, that brings the frogs into the garden, and then um, you know, even like you see them at the moment, my own little pond at home, the birds are coming in and they're washing in 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 the in, in the ponds. So you know, it, it brings everything into the garden. Um, it's from a wildlife point of view, and also great just to get out as a as, as a hobby, really get out and clean the the pond out and get some plants furred, and you know it's just really nice just to have the pond, and it's just you get you out and you're doing a bit more in around the garden, so especially when the weather warms up and gets a bit better, it's nice to have have the pond there. Yeah, absolutely. Something, something a little bit different, I suppose. And you touched on it there just as you were chatting about the size of it. Do they have to be huge? Do you need to make an absolutely massive pond or can they start off literally from the size of a bucket up to the they size can, of acres? Exactly. <laughs> they can literally start off with this. It can be a large pot. You know, it doesn't need to be anything too fancy. They can be small. I know my one, uh, I've one at home. It's only small. It's maybe five foot round and maybe about 18 inches deep. It's nothing too fancy, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a start. It gets wildlife in. And uh, it depends really on what you want to do. You know, if you're interested in getting fish into, into the pond, you definitely want something a little bit bigger. Um, obviously, the, the kind of the bigger the pond can be better, you know, less maintenance on it, less clean it out and less likely for, you know, any kind of algae issues or anything to build up in it. So, But if you want fish in the pond, it's probably something a little bit deeper um, will be required. But if it's just for, you know, wildlife and frogs and frog spawn and insects in the garden, something small, even little pot is definitely is fine. It's, it's more than adequate. Yeah, okay. So, and it is possible then to have fish in a wildlife pond because that's something that people ask. Can you have kind of a multifunctional pond, I suppose, that has a few fish in it and also is attractive to wildlife? Yeah, just with the right conditions, um, you can have the fish in it. You know, the fish do uh, perfectly fine in it. Um, so provide us, you know, a little bit deeper, maybe a couple of feet deep. And then really just add, start adding in a few plants just to have a bit of shade in the pond and somewhere that maybe the fish can go and hide, you know, from, from predators and somewhere for them just to, uh, yeah, just some, some cover for them to go in. But as long as you have the right conditions, some plants, um, in the pond and the fish will, it will try even it, yeah, they'll, they'll do perfectly fine. Yeah, they're, um, I've had a few at different times and uh, it tends to be once you get the fish going, they just sort of start multiplying and multiplying. And I think if you put a few fish in a pond, they'll always know how many that need to be in it. They'll sort of find their own balance quite happily. Uh, so that's always a good thing to know that you don't have to worry too much about looking after them. They're fairly, fairly self-sufficient. They look, they look after themselves. Yeah, if you have a few plants in as well, you know, they'll, they'll feed away on little bits of algae and you might need to give them a bit of food. But they, they tend to kind of look after themselves and you said they'll multiply and uh, they'll kind of find the balance then in the pond. Yeah, absolutely. And just the point there that we're talking about these ponds and, you know, it's great and all having uh, an area of wet in the garden and an area for wildlife, but we do have to be conscious of safety too. And, uh, you know, we all have, yes, a lot of us have young families and kids running around and uh, a pond is quite a dangerous thing if uh, kind of in the wrong place or if not protected. But there are ways that we can make a pond child friendly, isn't there? Yeah, you can. You can protect them. Um, I suppose probably you can have some mesh um, just uh, over the surface of the water. You know, if you are concerned about, you know, if you have young kids and you're concerned about them falling in, um, you can put some mesh uh, over, you know, over the pond and that'll stop them from falling in. Or if you're really concerned, you know, maybe just uh, not go down the pond route and maybe just a nice water feature um, in the garden uh, rather than kind of a, a, a shallow pond. Uh, so, you know, you can still have a, a nice... 
uh, water feature, nice flow of water, and you know keep the kids interested. But you know if you were concerned with really young kids, you know that might be a, a route you could go down either rather than the pond. Yeah, um, when they're when they're quite young. Uh, the other thing you could do, and I tried it uh, up in Carlo in my parents' garden. I tried to build a bog garden because uh, up there we've got quite a dry, sandy soil, which is great. But uh, sometimes when you'd want to grow plants that love boggy conditions, things like hostas and primulas and all those things, uh, that can be a bit of a challenge. So I tried to make a bog garden, which was kind of half successful. But if you do have a pond, maybe if you've moved into a garden that has one and you want to get rid of it or you want to be a little bit more careful when it comes to the kids, you could just fill it with soil and turn it into a bog garden because it'll always be a bit wetter um, and always be a place yeah. that you can you know uh, use I suppose so uh, it's one option if you do have a pond I suppose as well Yeah it sounds interesting doing that or right, something different as well and just you can uh, try that out also Yeah absolutely so you just said there and we mentioned it briefly there about planting in a pond and you know plants or ponds aren't just you know bodies of water they do have life in them they have I've just mentioned the fish uh, and they also have plants within them on top of them and kind of all around them so can you just talk a little bit about all of that and explain to people listening about plants for ponds yeah there's there's loads i think the i think plants in ponds is really important and um, you know some people will come into the garden center and they're just looking for a quick solution and maybe put a bit of you know a chemical treatment into it but i think the most important thing for a pond is having the correct plants in it um, you know, there's different plants you can get. Generally, you go by the zones. So zone one would be on the bank, zone two slightly in the water, and zone three, zone four, depending on certain plants, like certain conditions. Um, so there's loads of different plants you can get. You know, it's important that, you know, the, the plants offer shade, really, and the shade is what uh, will stop algae from building up in the pond. So you want kind of some plants on the bank that will offer shade, stop the, you know, direct sunlight getting onto the onto the pond. You can get full oxygenating plants that will quite happily float around in in the water and provide oxygen um, <clears throat> for the pond. And then you'd like to the water lilies, which are really popular, which you would put down into the, the pot into the water itself. And then the lilies, then um, you know, will offer some shade as well in the water, and then offer kind of protection for the wildlife in the pond. So there's a, a selection of different ones you can get. Um, you know, it's all zoned out. Zone one, two, three, four, and five, really, just for the depths of you know, for different depths in the pond. But I think the, the plants are really, you know, important. They'll absorb any nutrients in the water, which is you know, slow down any the algae growing so they're really just kind of a natural fil- filtration system for the pond itself yeah they're important for lots of different reasons i guess they're providing uh you know that keeping the water clean and also providing food and nectar and everything else so uh plants in ponds are quite important a pond without plants is sort of not uh serving all its functions i guess so very important to have that and uh, the other thing as well you don't have to have a pond just for wildlife but uh, i found where i work down in offaly um we put in a pond the pond was put in many years ago and it was designed to be a very formal pond to have flowing water in it and last year uh, or the last couple of years the toads have moved into it so it's absolutely no, or not toads I should say but newts so now it's covered oh, okay, in yes. yeah so sometimes when you want a pond to do one thing uh, nature can come around <laughs> and decide to do something else so uh, it's great if you want to do a very formal pond but be careful because uh, sometimes nature will decide there take the opportunity if you have a garden uh, with maybe not a lot of water in it they'll say there we go perfect opportunity so another thing James just to chat briefly about here is not just ponds we're talking about tonight but water features so 
uh, kind of yes. go hand in hand, don't they? Ponds and water features are sort of uh, on people's minds when they're thinking of all this for their garden. So just about the types of water features available, and I know it's very dependent on the garden that you have, but as you say, lots of people like to hear a bit of water. So is there sort of a water feature for every garden in every situation out there? I think so, yeah, there's loads of different ones, you know, we would have a, a large range of water features, you know, you can, either small ones, there's, you know, polyresin ones, some lovely cast stone ones, there's ones that would be, you know, centerpiece ones, so four-sided, centre of the garden, you'd have ones that are, you know, flat back for up against the wall, you'd have wall-mounted ones, hanging water features, so there's loads of different ones, really, like, different sizes, some people would prefer, you know, a larger flow, so it gives them more noise, or, you know, there's modern ones, and, you know, c- contemporary ones, there's loads of different ones you can get for, for kind of, to suit your needs, really, so, different sizes, you know, different, you know, the old traditional ones are still going around the storm with the line um, face ones are still popular and then there's new rust effect ones that have come in um, so there's loads of different ones you can get depending on where you want to put it in the garden um, say the centrepiece ones are still uh, very popular um, and then the wall uh, ones with flat back for a lot of people put them in a, in a corner in against the wall so there is a selection really that um, will suit every garden so yeah, there's one basically out there for every style, shape, base. Definitely uh, size. You yeah. can have a small patio garden and, you know, you can have a nice little uh, hanging one. There's little small ones that will suit for, you know, if you have a really small garden and then you have large ones for bigger gardens. So there's definitely one for, for everyone really and, you know, all different types. And on that kind of end of the spectrum where it's a bit bigger, have you ever seen the water feature uh, in Chatsworth House over in, I think, the north of England? Have you ever seen or heard of that place? I've only seen it online. Yeah, I've seen videos of it online. It looks very impressive. It's a huge kind of water feature. It's absolutely crazy. uh, They have a big canal. Now, this is probably one of the biggest, uh, you know, country houses over in England. And uh, back two or three hundred years ago, it's a feat of engineering as much as anything else, because uh, they have it at the end of a big, long canal. And it's actually just powered purely by the pressure of the water dropping 122 metres through the garden. The garden is on a big valley and the water is gravity flowing through this. And then it gets pushed through a 40 centimetre iron pipe and it shoots up, must be 20 or 30 metres into the air. It's a... It's kind of a garden feature on a different scale, but uh, that's not to say that you can't uh, try your own homemade one. But uh, I suppose there's, let's yeah. say, in there, there's a garden feature for every situation. I suppose. Um, when well, it was amazing because they always thought how they they used to operate the old water features, you know, without any power, and how how they actually done it. So it was a lot of it was gravity f- fed and pressure. Yeah, yeah, they just took advantage yeah. of the sites that they were on and yeah, a lot of sites are sort of uh, set up that you can just take advantage of that and in a case like that they were able to do it. Uh, the other one, it's a natural water feature but up in uh, closer to where you are, Powers Court, uh, the waterfall there is quite a sight as well and that's, I know it's oh, not gorgeous. a man-made water feature but it's a water feature in its own right and it really is impressive. So uh, there's water features in nature hard, yeah. as well as, you know, in our more <laughs> in, in our gardens and the ones that we plug in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and when it yeah. comes to getting them, uh, both the pond and the water feature, James, um, where in the garden would you be looking about locating them? Um, it's Yeah, so ideally somewhere that maybe gets the morning sun. 
um, and doesn't have, say, the afternoon full sun and somewhere that maybe slightly shaded and not close to maybe large trees. You know, we're going to have a lot of lower leaf falling, debris falling down and into the pond. But I think kind of the location is very important. So when you're picking out somewhere you want to have a pond uh, or water feature, I think, yeah, definitely someone's not going to get a the afternoon intense sun because that's when you'll get you know the algae building up in it so somewhere maybe it gets the sun in the you know morning mid-morning and then by the afternoon uh, the sun's kind of moved on and it's not getting that uh, you know full sun then in the afternoon so that'd be probably an ideal location for it if you were you know picking somewhere for for the pond um, or for the water feature it leads into the next question about the maintenance of it and what would you expect to do comes to maintenance and I suppose the number one thing on everyone's mind who's got a pond is this whole thing of algae um, and all of that and trying to keep it uh, not having too much of it so the best thing to do with algae is to obviously plant oxygenator plants but there's also a trick with straw isn't there there is the barley straw, yes. So the barley straw is actually just like a little bale. We we, we sell it here in the garden centre uh, in a net and you literally just pop that into the pond and it floats around into the pond um, and then that will slowly, you know, it stops the algae from, from spreading in the pond. So the, the barley straw is very popular, obviously it's natural product um you know you're not going down any treatments and um, that definitely that stops then the, the algae from, from spreading in the pond. Absolutely, and that's key to try and uh, not only have a beautiful pond to keep our gardens looking lovely, but also uh, maintain them and keep them looking gorgeous. So, James Connolly yeah. uh, from Arboretum in Kilquade, thank you very much for this evening uh, coming in and filling us in all to do with water features and ponds. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. The Garden Show on KCLR with Paul Smith, brought to you by Arboretum Home and Garden Heaven. Transform your garden with our unbeatable range of plants, trees, tools and treatments. Arboretum.ie uh, we have a few listeners' questions that we want to get to before the end of the show and a small bit of gardening news. Uh, so earlier on, we had Colm O'Driscoll, the head gardener down at Lismore on. And this coming Saturday, uh, Colm and myself will be at the Clare Garden Festival in the Ennis showgrounds um, in Ennis itself. So we'll be there, uh, both of us doing talks. So that's coming up. And also uh, Mary Pike uh, in the Roth House interview is talking about on the 20th of May, there is a plant sale to raise money for a new garden house in Roth House in Kilkenny City so both of those events are there and coming up. Uh, now I have a question in about potatoes and I decided I was going to just elaborate a bit on this because people ask about it all the time and you know it, Easter and Paddy's Day are both times that people would have planted spuds in the past and is that the right time and the answer is to both of those yes they're both correct um, and when you're going out to buy um, in the garden centre potatoes, you'll see they're sold generally as three different types uh, in terms of how they're sold. And that by that I mean they're sold as either first earlies, second early potatoes or main crop potatoes. And to anyone new to gardening, that might sound a bit like double dutch. But uh, to just let, break it down for a minute or two, I'll try and explain what those three terms mean. And very simply, they just mean how long it takes for them to actually produce an edible potato from the time you plant them in the ground. So the first early or the new potatoes uh, are called that because they're the earliest to crop. If you plant them kind of around Paddy's Day, you'll tend to have them ready by June. So that means they take about 10, 12 weeks to mature. The second early potatoes, uh, they're, I think, British Queens and those type of potatoes, they take a little longer to mature. So they, from the time you plant them in the ground, take 
about 14 to 16 weeks to actually mature. And then the main crop, uh, the one that we're all familiar with, the rooster potato being uh, probably the most common one and one that was actually bred in County Carlow, believe it or not, it was bred in Oak Park. Uh, and that takes about 16 to 22 weeks to actually mature a main crop potato. So when you're looking at buying potatoes and those terms, earlies, second earlies and main crop, it's all to do with how long it takes them to actually mature from the minute you put them into the ground. Now, there's a question in here from Kira. She says, Hey Paul, could you recommend a nice weeping evergreen tree for our front garden? We have acres and acres and a magnolia there already. She loves the Salix Babylonica, which is the deciduous weeping willow. So I spoke about willow as my plant of the week earlier. So, uh, loves that, but would like something else that keeps its leaves in the winter. And that is from Kira. So Kira, one plant to look at and one that I really love uh, that would work quite well there is the weeping cedars. So cedars are an amazing group of plants. Uh, you often hear about cedar if you're looking at uh, maybe doing some building work in your house. Cedar is a very durable and resistant timber, but they also grow as nice trees here. They tend to come from kind of Canada and America, that part of the world. But a cedar tree is a very good tree to grow here. And the weeping cedars, particularly you can get kind of light blue weeping cedars, really fantastic. Um, a whole host of different ones. But I think a weeping cedar in a situation like that, if you already have a weeping evergreen or a weeping willow tree in the garden, would be a nice one to kind of go along with that. And yeah, they're a great one to go and have a look for. Another question in here from Mary, wondering about watering of plants and when to water plants. Um, so it's just asking uh, about various different, uh, I won't go into detail, but there's loads of different types of plants and how to water them. Um, it's a question, when Eamon from the Arboretum was on last week, we kind of mentioned this briefly. Watering plants is something that's a bit of a dark art, and I don't mean that in a kind of any other way than it's just, it's hard to know exactly what a plant needs. And the best thing is have a look at the plant and have a look at the pot that it's in. And very often, uh, I'd say if you have a plant in a pot and you need to water it, lift it up, feel the weight of the actual pot. And if you feel the weight of the pot and it feels a little bit light, it can often tell you that it's in need of a small bit of water. So if in doubt, uh, get the pot, give it a lift up and see what it's like. And then observe the leaves of it. Uh, you know, plants will tell us fairly quickly when they need water. Now, that being said, if you leave a plant a day or two without it, uh, we'd be in kind of more bother. But it's definitely worth keeping an eye on the plant itself, feeling the pot weight and seeing how that goes. Well, now, that's just about all we have time for this week on The Garden Show. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. As ever, if you have any questions, send them in and we'll try to get them to you next week. And we're going to play out now with Flowers in the Window. to you by Arboretum Home and Garden Heaven. Transform your garden with our unbeatable range of plants, trees, tools and treatments. Arboretum.ie